Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I hope you had a wonderful holiday season. I hope you have a wonderful new year as well. I started this year, I was miserable. I was miserable and crazy and had a very unstable beginning to this year and kind of pulled it together. And I've been for some time now, since about early April, been really just, uh, I don't know, positive, more balanced, positive. That's not, it's not a, a word I would use to define myself as a, as a person typically, but I like to try on new little personalities, new outfits. So I've been trying out cautious optimism, pragmatic optimism, something like that. I wouldn't say uh, I'm the most positive person in the world. Sometimes I'm like, because I'm so cynical about things so much, I'm like, but if I'm not cynical, who am I? Will I even know who I am if I start thinking positively? I have defined myself as the cynical person. What's that even mean? And I don't know. I've been, I've just been trying out this, this new positive hat, outfit, it's neither of those things, personality, I, I don't know, I, see, I can't even make sense of, uh, it's, positivity is such a foreign concept to me, that I start talking about it, and my words start falling apart, I'm doing a show, New Year's, in Milwaukee, by the way, if you're hearing this in time, check it out, Tell your friends that are in Milwaukee as well. I'm going to be talking about our search for meaning, our search for purpose. Fascinating subject, isn't that? Don't you like thinking about that stuff, what all this is about? I wish we were talking about it more openly. That's what I'm trying to bring to the table with my stand-up act, with my stand-up skits. Um, And New Year's cardio. I think that's what I want to do for cardio. Uh, or, or for the New Year's resolution, get some cardio in my life. It's just one of those, I like things that you just can't deny. Like even something like meditation, like a lot of people benefit from it, but not everybody, it seems. Or, or uh, you know, some people just don't like it, doesn't work for them, whatever it might be. But cardio is one of those things like, man, I don't think there's anyone that's like, I, you know, I went jogging and did the cardio thing and it didn't didn't work. Didn't wasn't good for my heart and and lungs and uh, I I didn't get healthier. I don't think that that happens. I think we need cardio in our lives. So gotta try that. Gotta try some other things too. Maybe you know I like to. I was thinking, how crazy is this? I was thinking because I know what you're not supposed to do. You're not supposed to overload yourself, give yourself a million thing, go zero to sixty on the, you know, like January first. I'm gonna be perfect in every way. But I kind of want to try it. <laughs> I'm like, kind of like maybe I'll try being perfect just to see how quickly I fail certain things. I just want to see. 
don't know if I'm going to do that. I know it's a dumb thing to do, but I like doing dumb like experiments like that just to see how fast that bad idea would fail. But I was thinking cardio would be a really good because then other good things click into place. So then you're like, oh, well, I don't I won't drink soda or whatever it might be because I got to jog tomorrow. You know, your brain starts thinking that you start making healthier eating choices. That's my New Year's resolution. I don't know. Do you guys have one? You do the New Year's resolution thing? I kind of know that they don't... I mean, we talked about this on the podcast. I've had experts tell me to my face that New Year's resolutions aren't really a thing that works very well for most people and they can be disappointed. You know, the other thing, I really let myself go like with the holidays and everything. I just indulge. I'm like, well, you know, got that January 1st and then... New year, new me. I'm going to be perfect after that. So why not just indulge? Meanwhile, I don't think that's how it works. I think you're just building bad habits and you're making more work for yourself in January. But who knows? A lot of it's about the headspace that you get yourself into. I don't know. What do you think? I I think we need a holiday that's just like it celebrates balance. And you don't have like a big feast or anything. You just kind of have like very moderate, like healthy dishes, kind of nothing too crazy. Just uh, just a nice balanced diet. You kind of get together. It's not a big celebration or anything. It's you just kind of get together with your social network and with some family and kind of spend a little time with them. But you also do the other stuff. You exercise and do those sorts of things. You have a balanced day. A balance week, something like that, where you celebrate um, striving for balance in one's life rather than just like gorging yourself and then trying to be perfect uh, one week later. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it would work. Maybe it wouldn't. Um, point is, guys, I've been having a pretty good... Is that the point? What's the point here? New Year's is coming up. I'm reflecting. That's what it is. I'm reflecting on my year. And I'm optimistic about 2019. Gosh, I can't believe that's coming out of my mouth. But I am. I'm optimistic. I'm pretty excited about stand-up science. But even outside of unrelated to career stuff, because I had some career snafus and stuff this year, but I've just been, in general, I've been resilient to like bad things coming up. And I've just been... Uh, more balanced, more positive. I think I'm just slowly, I'm doing those small incremental gain things. I'm falling apart a little bit here and there, but I'm not beating myself up about it when I do. And, uh, and you guys are a big part of my life. I, I know, I don't know you personally. And here I am. I'm like in a hotel room. I'm talking to my own imagination, really. I'm imagining who you are. But I just, you know how much hope it gives me that people are interested in this podcast? My goodness, we learn so much. It's not always easy. Sometimes there's a dense amount of information. Oh my gosh, on top of everything else you got going on in your life. Now I'm getting up in your face telling you you got to learn all this stuff too. Life is so much sometimes. But you come and you, for entertainment, you come and you get stimulated. You you feed your curiosities. My goodness, what a wonderful group of people you are! I'm grateful for you on this holiday season. Looking into this new year, I'm uh, 
hoping to continue to get better as a host. I feel like that just naturally is happening over time. Just trying to get more on top of uh, life, organization stuff. I bite off more than I can chew. I'm already doing it with the stand-up science stuff. Biting off way more than I can chew. But it's nice to be excited about something. And it's nice to have something that uh, that people seem to like so far. It seems like it's... Seems like it's maybe oh boy why do why would I why even curse myself by saying this but it seems like it's going to be a little bit of a hit I I just need enough people to show up to make it uh, kind of a stable enough living just so I can keep on doing it and then I'll get better at that over time as well and uh, be able to pick the cities that I perform in which is hopefully everywhere but uh, more importantly. Uh, the time that I'm going there, my routing, having just control over my destiny, uh, eliminating some of the flying from my life, and being able to line more stuff up in like areas with nice weather eventually. I'm doing a big run through the Midwest in January, and I'm already dreading it because that's it's uh, dangerous driving and miserable driving around in all that snow. But um, I'm excited for stand-up science. It's it's a huge undertaking. I'm just having to book two guests and a comedian for every city. And I am not an organized, administrative type of uh, person. I'm a, I'm a put-me-in-front-of-a-mic-and-I'll-talk-without-planning-things-out-too-much-ahead-of-time-and-sit-around-reading-and-writing-and-that-sort-of-stuff-that's-what-I- that's what I focus on, blabbing, writing, and reading. But the emails, that those sorts of things, and following up with marking things on a calendar, I can't mark, I'm sure it's the easiest thing in the world for most people, just you, an appointment comes up, you mark it in the old calendar, done, don't need to think about it. I like to just have like a thousand things going in my head all at the same time and not writing any of them down in the calendar and forgetting things and feeling bad about it. Maybe that's another New Year's thing. See, I'm already, see, I'm, I'm going for perfect again. I'm trying to fix everything. Anyway, the point is, guys, I hope, uh, I hope you have a good New Year's. I'm really grateful for you. And this is, uh, the best thing that I do is this podcast is my favorite thing that I do. And so thank you and have a happy new year. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Distinguished Professor of History and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Mary Wiesner-Hanks is joining me today. Hello, Mary. Hi. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for joining me. You're going to be on one of the very first stand-up science shows that we're doing in Milwaukee, and I'm, I'm so excited to see your 
presentation. I just found out about a new concept. Called, what are you calling the, what's the, where you show the slide for 20 seconds? Oh, it's called Pecha Kucha. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. It's a Japanese way of trying to provide information visually and orally, but really quickly. I think it means quick stop or quick start or something like that. My son speaks Japanese. I don't, but it's something like that. Hmm. In which you just, 20 seconds a slide and... It's great for academics who have a tendency to yammer on and on, um, and it's how can you really quickly convey information to people, both visually and orally at the same time, which is kind of a yeah, an interesting thing to try to think about. Like, how can I make a visual impact, but something that people can like look at really quickly? Uh, so it can't be like awful PowerPoints where people have teeny tiny type that they then read, but it's just a way to to get information across quite quickly. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I guess I guess you've you've been focused on that task for some time. Your most recent book is it called "The Concise History of Everything"? Is that the title? Nearly the concise history of the world. The concise so. history of the world. Oh yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. so you didn't have to do the Big Bang and all that. We got. Well, <laughs> you know, it depends on where you start. There's actually there are people in history now who they call what they do big history, mm-hmm. who say that history shouldn't just start with people or with writing or something like that, that if we're really going to talk about history, history is the past. And the past, in fact, I'll do this in my comedy bit, um, the past starts with the Big Bang, which mm-hmm. we think is when time started. So if history is about time and the past, then, then it, it started with the Big Bang. Uh, you know, people who are sort of like astronomers and physicists might go, wait a minute, history is poaching on our territory if you're saying back 13.8 billion years ago. Um, but that's, you know, sort of my favorite quote on that is Carl Sagan's, in fact, who said, great, great line, that you know, if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, you've got to start by creating the universe. Mm-hmm. So if you want to, like, explain where we are now, and that's what the big history people do, is they, if you want to explain where we are now, well, then you have to keep going backward. And that means you have to keep going backward and backward and backward and backward and backward. And you try to say, well, then where do we start? Start with a big bang. I don't start mm. in that book. I didn't start with a big. Bang. Uh, maybe I mentioned it, but it was a that was a book that I tried to sort of provide a cultural and social history of the of the human past. Uh, but what world history and that book in in fact does do is it really includes the Paleolithic. So historians used to be sort of a wall between historians and, and, and archaeologists and anthropologists. Like historians are only about written records, and archaeologists and anthropologists study the stuff they're paying before. That wall's gone, um, and which is really exciting. That we all, everybody who studies human beings, looks at a whole kind of range of sources, hmm. visual and material as well as as written. Interdisciplinary is the big kind of yeah. buzzword these yeah, days. Yeah, or or I'm a historian. I'll, we'll just colonize everything. <laughs> yeah, well, these poor you know, physicists, yeah. they're, they're like, yeah. space is my thing. Get yeah. out of my space get out of my space. space. Yeah, get out of my space space. And, <laughs> and you know, and not much about physics, I, I, I of course, don't understand. Uh, every discipline has its well, own it's all relative. It's, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right, absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it is it is worth noting that, that – <laughs> Clearly, these physical laws are a part of how we came into being and and uh, uh, certainly dictate some of the parameters uh, from which we live with gravity and biology and these things. There, there's only 
there, there's reasons why throughout history there hasn't been all of a sudden people flying through the air without without yeah. the help of tools and that sort of thing. So there, there's definitely, and we talk a lot about um, evolutionary history on the show and kind of how looking at patterns from non-human animals as well and, and seeing yeah. how some of these patterns maybe apply to our lives. And it's all, it is, it's all, it's all, uh, it's getting harder and harder to find these, these borders and create these really distinct lines where these categories of, of thoughts or disciplines fall into. When we talk about non-human animals, I'll just throw it back to you. It's all relative. <laughs> so, <laughs> or so, our relatives. <laughs> right. As it is. Um, so, yeah, I, I just, I think 50% of our DNA is, is shared with earthworms or something yeah. like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a guest was saying recently. So... You're the first kind of, I guess, historian that I've had on uh, on the show, if my memory serves me correctly. I And there's a reason for that. <laughs> One is it is a huge insecurity on my part. I was a terrible student, and history is one of the, cl- the classes that I never paid any attention in. And, and as an adult, I became absolutely fascinated with First physics and and then evolutionary theory and I I tend to when I think about history think about things on these pretty large time scales of an adaption taking place over say ten thousand years is is like real quick in evolutionary time where mm-hmm. if you think about modern history a lot of times you know you're talking about a civilization that pops up for maybe three hundred years maybe. 600 years something like that so it's it's definitely a different scale in um in modern history but i i do wish and and so so this has just been something that i've been waiting (laughs) it's a big gap in my understanding of the world and i i like basically right now you're just going to have to pretend that you're talking to a fifth grader because that is my knowledge (laughs) of human history uh but i have a i have an odd question for you because you've written how many books now Mm, sort of depends on how you count about 30 i guess about 30 yeah (laughs) <laughs> well, books. some of Once them I wrote. In a while, I'm like, one day maybe I'll write a book. <laughs> well, no, you know, that seems like an undertaking. Well, and when I say it depends on how you count, because I write them with people, I have, uh-huh. you know, you're talking a little earlier about interdisciplinarity. I've really been fortunate to be able to collaborate on books with other kinds of historians, people who specialize in other time periods and other places in the world, and also people in other disciplines, people in comparative literature or in anthropology. Uh, so I've really been able to to work with lots of other people. So when I say depends on how you count, that's what I mean is some of those are ones that I've done with people. Uh, and so I've been, I've been really fortunate to be able to, to work, work across such a broad field. Hmm. All right. That's... So ask me your fifth grade question. <laughs> well, I have a curveball question Ooh. for you. All right. What you, so, so you've studied all these different periods in history. What period is to you 
the most boring period in history. There's because everyone you read the history channel and you're like, and then there was this or or you read the history channel. Is that what I said? <laughs> you watch a history channel right. and it's like, it, you know, everything's sensationalized. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. and there was this great war and this happened and a civilization collapse. Was there ever in our in our in our modern history? It's it seems like it seems like hunter gatherers were kind of kicking around yeah. for a little while without yeah. as eventful things happening in say a century but um uh, but uh was there a period of time in our modern history where like 150 years went by where humans were just kind of twiddling their thumbs well it's a different question than like what do i find boring what do i find boring is the 19th century which is going to like upset a lot of people here. This, if any of those people are historians, especially if they're Civil War buffs, because they say, "Woo, the nineteenth century, you know, industrialization and imperialism and the Civil War." And did I mention the Civil War? Um, <laughs> but if it's, you know, <laughs> which is sort of half the History Channel is the Civil War. Well, maybe a quarter of it is a Civil War, and a half of it is Hitler, um, right. and a quarter of it seems to be like ice road truckers and other kinds of stuff that I can never figure out why it's on the History Channel. But know. you know, it provides some. Some employment for some history students, so that's okay. Um, so, I mean, the 19th century to me is just not as interesting as other centuries are. I started out as a historian studying the 16th and the 17th century, so those are the centuries I know the best, and I really still love them, or I wouldn't, like, like I figure what you do in life is, even what century you pick as a historian, if you decide to be history, or what field you go into is because that's what you really like. I mean, you don't say, I think I'm going to start out and study something that's really boring, <laughs> you know, like, what's the most boring thing I can find? That's what I'll go and spend my life doing. Nobody does that. No, but it, <laughs> but it's it's. I mean, it's interesting that that's the exact kind of answer that I wanted because there is this once you once you get to learn about uh, a given subject, you find that like you learn it really well, and then the general population there's like one book that everyone knows about or one little aspect of yeah. it that everyone knows yeah. about and that's all they know but yeah. usually if you if you talk about science people are like space is interesting <laughs> is that what science is and yeah. I'm like eh, science yeah. is so much more than just yeah. space yeah what people know in the 16th century are the sexy tutors that's what they know mm -hmm. so so that's where i start you know i mean well in other words with my students especially i mean that's what they know so always when you teach history as opposed to like when you do it you're always trying to think, okay, what has every person in my class just seen that I've got to kind of work against or with or, mm -hmm. or something? So, you know, I've been teaching a long time. So, you know, that I also teach world history. And at one point that meant like every person in the class had just seen Gladiator, like right. everybody person. And then every person in the class had just seen 300. So, and now basically every person in a class, if I'm teaching the 16th century, they've seen some variation of some Tudor movie or – Few of them maybe have read a book about them, but mostly seen stuff. And so they've seen some kind of, you know, sort of heaving bosoms, male and female of various tutors. So I think of it as like the sexy tutors. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so that's what they, they have in their head kind of as Henry VIII. And, or sometimes they think, well, now is it Henry the Sixth and eight wives or Henry the Eighth and six wives? I can't really remember. A lot of them, and he killed some of them. And then Elizabeth was really great. And so, <laughs> you know, and she looked like, depending on, you know, she looked like Kate Blanchett or she looked like Carolyn Mirren or she looked like whoever. And so, but yeah, so that's where I start. Mm. Um, and that means that for teaching the century, and again, I sort of, after I just said, oh, 19th century and the Civil War, people who teach the Civil War, you know, they have people in their class that 
know a huge amount and that know a huge amount more than they know about certain kind of things often because they're people that know, like they're just fascinated by some battle or something else like that. And they know a lot. Uh, and so that's sometimes really fun to have as a student. Uh, people who really know, which maybe is different than t- teaching physics or something because it's just, there are, I don't know, maybe there's physics buffs. Maybe you're a physics buff. But there's just people who are just fascinated by one thing in history and then they learn a, a really lot about that. And so, and I think kind of your experience with history is unfortunately a lot of people's history of experience in history in school is that they think of it, it's kind of boring. It's all about names and dates. And yet when people get a little older, what do they do? They go and, you know, visit historical monuments and they visit, they go around or they do their family history or they get a, you know, a, a subscription to ancestry.com. And that's all that, you know, they really, really, really want to, they not, they don't just learn about history. They they want to do history themselves. They put together scrapbooks or they sort of the history that's meaningful to them, however that is, however they define that, something that they've got a connection to. So history is something that people do as well as like read about or watch on TV or something in a way that, that I think would probably be harder. I mean, I'm not a scientist. Uh, it would be maybe <laughs> history is a science. But, but history is something that you can – Develop the tools to be able to do it yourself in a way that you don't have to have a microscope, you don't have to have a lab, you don't have to have to have some giant CERN, you know, particle accelerator or some kind of equipment like that. You have to have curiosity and you've got to have, be able to read or now or to go to a place, um, to, to find out about it and, and you want to know about it. And, and so there's really lots of, you'd say, oh, it's amateur history, but there's really a lot of really wonderful, kind of amateur history or whatever that's going on right now, just because it's the history that people feel connected about. And if people feel connected to the sexy tutors, great. They can go to England and, you know, look at the place that various people got killed, great, and and take trips that way. So that's that I think makes history sort of different than other other fields in that it's something that often older people are for for students they've experienced more history uh, are than younger people. But the people have a they're really interested in in a variety of different ways, as long as it's not what the history is taught in school. Mm. Well, that's interesting that when you're talking about, so you're kind of creating these these bridges to make this accessible to people, and you kind of got to come to people where they are a little bit. Um, so sorry for that with me, right? <laughs> it's quite the long bridge that you're going to have to cross. But it's interesting. Well, one, it there must be some times where, yeah, like you say, you make a gladiator reference. Now the tutor, there must be times where, well, now you got to keep up with every, every dumb movie that comes out just so you know what's in people's heads and you don't want to date yourself as a historian with your gladiator references. Or Braveheart, which no one has seen and like their what? mom might have seen it. Yeah, it's terrible. I used to be able to do a lot of Braveheart references because everybody, <laughs> which is like, not what you want people to think of early English history, but but everybody has seen it, and now right. it's kind of like uh, everybody looks at you like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, I, I guess our what it's making me think of is how interesting our that is that our idea of history is evolving very quickly in in our modern time and 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 kind of 
uh, kind of what pops up in the in the zeitgeist in the cultural uh, is dependent on what's what people are seeing in the media what's hot right now in terms of hollywood movies and or you you watch you watch the news everyone's like you're a nazi no you're a nazi this person's a nazi it's like <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah okay nazi right but you don't no yeah. one's ever like accused of being like king todd or something you know it's all it's <laughs> yeah. always like a, a yeah. very specific reference but then these these um these can uh change quite a bit as well i'm i'm wondering how our view uh, for you as a historian i want to get a sense of what it's like being a historian in modern times if you think that it's if if you think that it's easier if the internet if, if the current tools have made some of it easier and and then also if there are it, pressures on historian historically historians had <laughs> had pressure to kind of show say their nation's history in a in a, a rosy light i i think i saw some uh something about the when the india when they were putting together their constitution there was uh all of the papers at the time were talking about how how long this process was taking and there was like all these cartoons making fun of the fact that this was taking forever and all the bickering that was going on and then once it was done now in modern day they're trying to all, all these cartoons are in their history books and they're kind of trying to whitewash their history books to take those cartoons out because these were their founding fathers and they want their founding fathers to be these perfect people that had these perfect ideas and i think you could probably say the same about america and probably any any place that's ever uh existed but now it's, it seems like maybe there's a, a bit more freedom as a historian i don't know well i think that that, that history also ends up being a flashpoint in a way that say, math or like whenever there's discussion about what should kids learn in school, people say, well, you know, math, they should definitely learn math. And there's not really a sort of fuss about, well, what kind of math should they learn? I mean, for a while long ago, there was the new math and we went through this and there was all this set theory stuff, but there wasn't really very much fuss about that. There's certainly fuss about biology having to do with evolution. My brother used to teach biology and said, oh, that whole thing. There's not so much fuss. There's occasionally fuss about like what book should they read in English. But whew, whenever you start to talk about what sort of history should they learn, especially American history should they learn, every time there's a kind of – whether it's a debate about AP or new history standards in some state or another, you just get an enormous flap about it because in general – Sort of people, more conservative people think, oh, you know, they're getting, they're just not getting enough George Washington is basically the way it goes. Too much Harriet Tubman and not enough George Washington. <laughs> um, you know, and people just don't say that, oh, you know, they don't fuss about chemistry the same way or they don't fuss, you huh. know, you know, they don't say, you know, oh, we've just got too much of this compound and not enough of that compound. We don't have the right balance here, but they absolutely do about history. It's mm. always also about content. It's always about, you know, we just got to have this. And also because they kind of think of particularly American history as kind of civics. Students should learn civic values, which means, you know, about George Washington. Um, not that he was a slave owner, but other things about George Washington. You shouldn't learn that he was a slave owner. <laughs> um, right. So especially U.S. history is the real one that really feels – but even, I mean, I teach world history and European history. World history is the same way to a sort of lesser extent, oh, you know, that there should be some kind of a, of a thread through it all that talks about modern values or something, you know, that in a certain way. So, so it ends up being because, because I think people, people sometimes have this kind of vision in their head about what history should, history should be stories about great people of the past. Um, 
well, that's okay. That's one kind of history. Uh, and I would say, getting back to, to your original question about how is history different now? I mean, it's real. I mean, I've been in this business a long time. I, mean, I went to graduate school forty years ago uh, when there wasn't an internet, which meant that if you were going to do history, uh, if you're going to do modern history, you read printed materials. If you were going to do history of a period that I work on, the 16th century, you read manuscripts. In other words, handwritten documents from the 16th century. <laughs> so one of the tools that I had to learn, which whatever you, you specialize in, you have to learn certain kind of tools. One of the tools I had to learn was how to read 500-year-old handwriting. Uh, you know, I always said to my mother, whose handwriting was terrible, I said, well, mom, you really trained me well to read this stuff because practically nothing that I'm trying to read here from 500 years ago is as terrible as your handwriting. She said, see, I told you I taught you a lot. <laughs> um, but so that's a tool. Okay. Mm. So that's a tool that if you still want to read handwritten things, you still have to learn it. So some things haven't changed. And that if you really, again, if you're a, a person who studies a, a, a past before a printing or a past when still many, many things are only in manuscript, you still have to learn those kind of things, um, how to read how to read those documents. And you have to understand them. And if they're in foreign languages, you have to learn the language, uh, of course, because not everything in the world is written in English. Um, perish the thought. But so some of those tools haven't changed. And sometimes you still have to physically go to places in order to study them. You have to go to an archive or a library somewhere and study that. But increasingly, more and more of that is now available on the web. It might still be handwritten. And so you still have to learn how to read the handwriting. But but archives and libraries are are digitizing things quickly, or at least whenever people and libraries are getting really smart about how to do this, small libraries that don't have a ton of money say, well, whenever somebody wants one of our books, you know that we haven't digitized yet, we'll digitize it, and we'll just kind of do this in order of when people want them, you know, like user demand. What that means is that you know my students now or people working now don't have to physically necessarily go to places. They can do this in the comfort of their own home, which is sort of great in some places, but it's also not so great because <laughs> you don't have to go to those places. You can do this while sitting around in your jammies um, and do your research there. But but I would say also that, that then that's kind of different because when, when I study old documents, I'm holding them in my hand. Well, I'm not supposed to touch them usually, but but they're, I'm looking at them, and sometimes I can touch them depending on the archive rules. So I actually have the actual thing in my hand. In other words, I have a piece of paper, a parchment, or a book, or something or other that somebody wrote on, some person, usually some man, because uh, most uh, wrote on however many long years ago it, old it is. So I'm, I'm not just reading the words on the piece of paper. I'm touching the piece of paper. I'm looking at the ink. I'm I'm getting a sense of connection, direct connection with the past in a way that I don't think you can get on a computer screen. And I think that also explains why people still, I mean, you can go, every every museum now has wonderful digital exhibits. You can go and look online. I mean, everybody has just great and amazing things. So you can see things from around the world that you, you wouldn't have a chance to see in your lifetime. But people still really like to go to places and walk around in places to know that where you're walking around is where whoever you're interested in or whatever you're interested in, real people walked around in this place. And you, you know, you get a sense then of being in the physical space with them, of thinking, you know, I was just in Glasgow last year and there was a, what's called a tenement museum, a little, little apartment of a, of a woman who, it kind of got shut up from the 19th century, <laughs> I'll say, which I'm usually not so interested in. Um, but it was completely untouched for 80 years, and then they discovered that it was, it was just a or completely ordinary small apartment that a working-class woman lived in 100 years ago or 120 years ago. And it was such a 
it was so meaningful to just kind of get a real sense of her life and the way it was and this teeny tiny place she lived in and what was there and what she saw every day and how she put her clothes away and what she did in her in her domestic space and what did she have out on her shelves. And again, this had not been touched. Um, that just yeah, you could take a virtual tour and they have the nice little museum has a virtual tour that you can do it, but just to to really you could then go out and look at the street and say, oh well, she would have seen this or that. To really try to put yourself in the place of a person that lived however many years ago it was, or you know even King Tut's time. Um, I mean, why do people still keep going back to the Egyptian pyramids? Uh, you can see them a million different places. You can do all kinds of virtual tours. They're now doing drone tours of this, you know, the places. There's no reason you have to go to be able to see these things now. Um, but people still want to want to walk through these places and kind of see that there's still something about seeing it for yourself that's different. Different, I think, than seeing it either on a television screen or on your computer screen. Also, because then you can touch it. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you're not supposed to touch really old things, but you know, and um, but but you're still. I mean, you're if even if you're not supposed to touch it, your feet are touching where people were, and and that's different. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's also setting kind of an intention. And if you went all the way to find this old document, you're probably pretty focused when you are reading it. Rather, yes. like, I I yeah. can. <laughs> I can work from bed, no yeah. problem. It's yeah. very easy yeah. for me to work from bed, but right. I get more work done if I'm not in bed <laughs> when I'm doing yes. it. And this yes. is kind of if you're just on Wikipedia looking up history and going yeah. down different wormholes and clicking around on things. Yeah. You might be scanning across whole eras of, yeah. of existence, but you might not be absorbing uh, a whole lot while you're doing it. But it's pretty cool that there's the option for, for people to uh, get a little taste of whatever they're interested in, even if they're uh, halfway across the world. Yeah. Um, I like the idea that there's, uh, of, of taking an interest in what a normal individual person's life might have been like at a certain period in time. When you hear about history, you hear about Hitler or George Washington or King Tut or these <laughs> Like a, a larger Guys. than life men <laughs> yeah. and, and, uh, not, not seeing a whole lot about the kind of day to day life necessarily of the, of the, um, common person. Is that, is that something that is in many cases just nearly completely lost from the history books or are there, are there ways throughout? Because you'd think if, You'd think there's plenty of periods where, like, whatever king was paying whatever historians to write history, and 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 they're going, well, here's I'm history, write about me, yeah, um, and and probably not so much of like an anthropo- uh, a- anthropological view uh, um, throughout most of the periods of time, right? Are are there gaps in there, or are there ways? How how do people? How does a historian like yourself try to get a sense of what what a common everyday person was going through? Well, I mean, the further down the social scale and the further back you go, the fewer and fewer sources there are. But but I think this kind of relates to what we were talking about at the very beginning, which is that and and again about your question about what's different about being a historian now than maybe forty years ago or fifty years ago or a hundred years ago. Is that the tools that we have to do research, some of which are sciencey tools, allow us to answer some questions that we weren't really able to do 
50 years ago. For example, like Ancestry.com. I mean, that you and I are carrying around inside us DNA code that tells us, which is why we can get Ancestry.com thing, and it'll read it for us, and it'll say, you know, you're X percent this or that or the other thing. Um, but that carries certain kind of things within us that tell us about our past. A hundred years ago, no historian, even the most fancy historian, I mean, the, the, the most eminent historian in the world, that historian didn't have that tool that now anybody that spits into a test tube can have, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. about their own past or about anybody's past, so that we can trace things like the migration of people and, you know, the kind of thing. Not only do we, you know, share DNA with earthworms, but we share assumptions such with Neanderthals, uh, you know, so we know that Neanderthals and Homo sapiens then had sex in the past, um, uh, you know, so that there's, there's that kind of until tool they didn't, and until then they it was didn't, war. yeah, and then they just <laughs> almost even just wiped them out, um, or they just died, uh, evolutionary pressure, whatever you want to call it, um, right. just killing them. So there's, there's, you know, that's, I mean, that sounds like kind of an exotic tool, but for mm-hmm. example, um, some some scientists, microbiologists, and and other people who do historic microbiology have have determined definitively that the disease that killed a lot of people in the 14th century really was a bacillus called Ursinia pestis. There's a debate about was it really which the Black Death, okay? So what was the Black Death like epidemiologically, all right? So there were people said, well, maybe it was the Black Death, maybe it was Ursinia pestis, maybe it was something else, maybe it was this or that. So people dug up plague cemeteries in London and looked inside the teeth of people who were buried in these 14th century cemeteries that we know they all died of the plague. Um, and inside their tooth pulp, which still, they found the Ursinia pestis. In other words, they found the bacillus that killed them inside their teeth, which is where it happens or it lodges there. Okay, this is definitive. I mean, this is a, it's not a, oh, wait, maybe it's one thing or another. I mean, a lot of things about the past we can't tell. I mean, we'll never be able to answer those kind of, certain kind of questions. But we know for sure now because it's still there in their, you know, in the biological evidence in the epidemics of this disease. So, so that's another, I mean, that's a kind of a tool that you can use to say, okay, ordinary people in the past, a lot of ordinary people in the 14th century died of, of the black death, I mean, but of this particular thing, bubonic plague, um, not some other disease, and and it's related to other kinds of more recent outbreaks of bubonic plague. So that can also tell us then, okay, about a lot of people dying. But then you can take your historians' tools and like look at the cemetery and okay, okay, so who's all buried in here? Are they buried in families? Did what kind of a family group did? Young, did the black death kill lots of old people and young people, but it killed a lot of people in the prime of life? That means what did that might that have done to families when you have something like like catastrophic event like that happening? So that as a historian, you can take these new kinds of evidence like microbiology uh, and or DNA evidence or something, and all kind of evidence like looking in death records as using historians' tools from your, or archaeological records of how big were the cemeteries. And people had to, if you have something, you know, suddenly a third of your population dying, you have to have a lot of cemeteries. So who's doing the grave digging? What does this mean? And do you have normal, I mean, can you have actual funerals? And then people ask, what did it mean to people if suddenly a third of the, I mean, a third of the people that you know are dead? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. you can't, and we have evidence of what it did mean to people. People write about it and talk about it and such. And yeah, most of those people are going to be people among the elite, not necessarily kings, but of course, certainly people who could write. But people also expressed their emotions. And the history of the emotions is a new 
subfield in history that's being developed right now that's really, really very interesting. We know that the emotions are, some of the emotions are physiological. In other words, they're natural. I don't like to use that word, but there's certain things that happen, flushing, for example, and, and becoming red-faced when you get angry. I mean, this is a physiological, things that happen to your body. And you can try to keep, you can kind of control yourself, or as we <laughs> just saw with, you know, a recent Supreme Court guy, you can't control yourself, or right. you intentionally don't control yourself, because um, you want to prove a point. Uh, to, but, but most of our emotions are, I mean, emotions are really, really different culturally, culturally, and over time. So, what do we do? We try to look at then what it, again, getting back to the bubonic plague, what did it mean to people? How did they react to this? And they express themselves in art. So you look at art, they express themselves in writing. They write out wills to say, how oh, my children are now going to get what I, my, whatever I've left or not. Um, they buried people in certain ways and how people care, sort of depressing, but how people take care of the dead. What do they do with the dead uh, is something that, I mean, it's part of been part of human being since the beginning of Homo sapiens, and many people study Neanderthals. In fact, are now pointing to the fact that Neanderthals may have carefully buried their dead in a certain way. Um, they laid them out a certain way. There's some evidence they might have even buried dead with flowers. So it's some kind of exactly what it means. We don't know, but 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 when you lay out, when you put a dead person in a certain way, when you put a body in a certain way, it means you have there's something that you think about whether it's a, an, an idea of an afterlife or something, an idea of respect for the dead person or they're going to continue or their spirit is with you. Who, we don't know. That we don't right. have any access to for Neanderthals. But what we do know is they did this. And so um, so I think that get, getting back to your question about you know sort of social history, which is what I do, or social and cultural history, which is what I do, of women and men, and both, both of them and children now too, is that, that what we look for is evidence – most people, of course, when you go back beyond the 20th century, can't read or write, so they don't leave written evidence. But we f- try to find evidence of what they did. Mm-hmm. And then um, from that, try to figure out, extrapolate, well, why did they do that? And, and what did that mean for them? Right. Um, right. It seems uh, so you go, well, it seems like people do like to exert some sort of control over situations if they can. And sometimes this uh, expresses itself in in um, uh, habits and routines, traditions, obsessions, compulsions, and and this uh, this could be part of this funeral process of of us being able to think further and further into the future. While we think, okay, what happens after life? And now there's this very chaotic unknown and and chaos and and our our brains pattern recognition <laughs> software that moves us forward uh, don't don't get along very well so anything that we can do even if it's kind of a placebo effect to think that we're having control over these situations might might be influencing what we do uh with our dead it seems like it seems like some other um mammals out there do some sort of a ritualistic ish behavior too um yeah there's some some discussion of that among elephants and some mm-hmm. other um 
I don't know that well enough to know to know uh, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's fine. Uh, but but then you talk about a kind of emotions and yeah. well, things like black plagues mm-hmm. have <laughs> have 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 shaped us in ways like say our disgust mechanisms yeah. uh, that yeah. make us go like, hey, let's not eat that rotten right. food. There seems to be some consequences uh, to that, and and uh, and then those disgust mechanisms sometimes get set off when we talk about our. Our moralist, I just had a person on talking, uh, wrote a book called Objection, uh, discussed morality and the law mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. these, how these evolved kind of, um, preferences or discussed mechanisms influence the way that we think about, say, our modern political landscape <laughs> and who should have what rights and when yeah. and sexual preferences and yeah. what people should do and, uh, what. And, um, and, and, but also a plague must have, and things like that must have shaped modern medicine quite a bit. They must have shaped um, sanitation quite a bit, and in the eventual use of of plumbing and how we <laughs> interact with uh, that, that all must have played a huge influence. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things I try to do again, thinking about students, is that there's a tendency to think when students just look at the way people dealt with disease in earlier times, however earlier you want to make it, um, their immediate reaction is these people were really dumb because they didn't understand this or that, whatever it is. Um, you know, they they took blood or they didn't understand about germs or they didn't understand about this or that. And, and I try to sort of help them see that it, no people in the past aren't dumb. They just had a, they had just have different ideas about how the, way the body operated. And what they did to try to deal with disease was, basically the whatever worked so that they were dealing with it in a way that was the same practical way that we try to do with you know I mean, we still no, don't know how a lot of medicines actually work i mean right. we, we know that we know that they work um you know mm-hmm. you take this and you'll feel better or this goes away but exactly what the mechanism is by which this particular drug affects you this particular way we don't know that um we just know it works is it putting it, more yeah. serotonin into yeah. the brain yeah. is it inhibiting Whoa. the right. reuptake yeah. <laughs> process yeah. and yeah whatever right. it works i take right. this and i feel better okay i'll just keep taking this and i'll tell my friend that they should take this too i mean this is not you know this is the way that the stuff gets you know advertised all around the internet now that has you know peach pits or whatever people are currently taking for whatever um but the same, you know, the same thing happened with, say, in, in the t- in the time of the Black Death. I mean, people tried medical ways of doing this, uh, handling the, the disease. They tried quarantine. Now, there's get the sick people away from us, which is a pretty sensible way to deal with disease. Don't be around sick people. Well, that's a mm-hmm. good idea. Um, they tried to leave. They tried uh, prayer, uh, turning to, you know, I mean, they tried various kinds of religious re- remedies. They tried amulets and magical kinds of things. Again, if you go online right now to try to find some kind of cure for whatever, you'd still, <laughs> you'd still find the same range of things, and, and sort of all blended together. Not called cleanses, cleanses, or something or, like yeah, that. This is, this whatever. Is, the yeah, his, history of having yes, to deal yes. with this has shaped our preference for <laughs> yeah. something called, yeah. like, say, a cleanse yes. or a yeah. detox. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Um, so. So we have, uh, and by the way, I'm actually, I'm, I feel a little silly about it, but I'm, I'm wearing some leeches at the moment right now. And I don't know what they're doing. I just know they make me feel better. But so there are these, there are these sort of kind of pathways that we can see 
through history this influenced that influenced that and they say history's 2020 you know and it seems very clear and uh, to, to some people <laughs> this is the way say a history channel or yeah. a documentary would present things you know you had napoleon he had his rise he was doing pretty good for a hot minute there and then he got a little too cocky and then and so okay so we kind of know exactly what happened there there must be what what's the biggest head scratcher in all of history for you where you're like well what in the world happened uh, there there's something that you just you you can't seem to figure out how, how something influenced a whether it's I, I don't know sanitation or airplanes or you know how 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 did they go from here to here to there in in history well <laughs> there's there's a lot of things but I uh, you know I think that that what what else what I what I'd say is and again this is something I mean I teach women's history and I've taught it and researched it my whole career as a historian and it was pretty new when I started out as a historian like it was not something that people asked about back in the dreadful 19th century when what we understand as history is created by the way one reason I don't like it um the 19th century that is but I mean because people sort of history as it was defined like history with a capital H um, was created by Germans in the late 19th century professional history as we know it in universities, university kind of history, which tended to then be very military. And as you said earlier, really kind of oriented around nations and nationalism. And you should tell the story of your people, however you understand your people, and basically, basically the tell the story of your big guys. So it was defined in a political and military way, sort of the standard way what we think of as traditional history. And what the last 40 years or so of history Social history, women's and gender history have kind of challenged that and said, wait a minute, that's not all of history. That's part of history, but it's not all of it. Um, and we really need to look at the history of everybody if we can, as much as we can, and try to include everybody in the, in the past. Um, so there's been this more inclusive view of history. Uh, and, and from that more inclusive view of history, and my students ask the question all the time is like, like, what is the origin of patriarchy? I mean, I guess is the way that they would say, you know, why is it that no matter where, where you're looking, at what time you're looking, like men have always been understood as better. What is that? Um, and where does it come from? And I mean, it's a question I have. It's a question I don't have an answer to. You know, well, you know, maybe it's related to agriculture. Maybe it's related to this or it's related to this. But it's a question. So I think sometimes what's more of a question to me are continuities rather than big changes. Probably because I think people expect change all the time. And you want to think, okay, like why, if this has changed and that's changed and that's changed, why are we still stuck with this? Um, and again, it's a kind of, I mean, I'm teaching a women's history course right now of the 16th century. And my students say, well, like way back in the past, you know, in the olden days, it was like that. Why is it like not so different now? They ask that a lot. Um, why is it, why is this sort of partly I try to say as a person who's been doing history for 40 years, well, it's actually a lot better than it was 40 years ago, you know, mm -hmm. before you were born, <laughs> um, things were worse. Uh, but, but so it, it's kind of a, a narrative of, uh, they both have a narrative of progress in their heads, but now they also have, particularly given kind of the very contemporary political events, a realization that that maybe it's not quite as much kind of linear progress as they expect. Um, and so, like, why are these ideas still there? Um, and so that's a question, you know, there's a kind of a conundrum of things. And I think people have there isn't a good answer. Um, you know, and then the kind of the next question says, well, will, will it ever change? You know, that's, you know, I say to my students, that's up to you. <laughs> you know, you're 20 and I'm not. Um, but so I think that's another, you know, kind of 
amidst all these enormous changes, and right now we're in a period thinking about the last 50 years or so of kind of technological change, where change, 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 you know, I mean, this is all the sort of tech reading you know, an interview with Mark Zuckerberg, I said, you know, move fast and break things and everything's disruptive and we're going to disrupt this, we're going to disrupt that, we're going to disrupt that and then we're going to try to deal with the problems that we create after we've done all the disrupting. Uh, so that's, for people my students' age, that's what they expect. It's like, well, it's going to change tomorrow and it's going to change tomorrow because that's what the way thing and everything new is good and everything new is going to be really, really different. And so they're struck by, as am I, are struck by certain kind of things that that still seem to persist from, in their view of things, a really long time ago, 500 years to now, and are perplexed by those those continuities. Because, um, hmm. you know, what they're used to is change. Um, what they're not used to is something that, no matter all these changes happen, this thing is still there. Hmm. Well, let's talk about, well, first off, um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, according to Donald Trump, no one respects women more than Donald Trump <laughs> does. So that's yeah. got to be reassuring. Yeah. Um. So I I, w- I remember watching this this uh, documentary, um, Human Planet. Um. It's like one of those mm-hmm. Animal Planet, mm-hmm. Deep Blue, yeah. you know. And uh, and there is an episode with this hunter gatherer tribe, and there's this time of year where uh where the men get all all dressed up and wear all this makeup and then they stand in line and they and they do these special dances for a really long time to show off what good dancers they are and they're wearing all this fancy jewelry and everything else and the women are just sitting around looking and kind of deciding which one of these guys <laughs> uh they're going to pick some people argue that this is this was kind of the norm for for some time that that like in many species females uh, seemed to uh, you could say did uh, did a lot of the selection kind of um uh, pressure and 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 were kind of uh the choosers and 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 males were kind of throwing a bunch of spaghetti against the wall let's let's see what works here in this in this given environment and this and and uh it it seems like since since there was and who knows if that uh, that was necessarily the case, but certainly within modern time, once once we started having modern civilization, once we started having cities, that was never the the even even the people that were uh you, you know maybe leaders um I've I've seen and speculated that at first it was you would you would send um you would send someone to uh go and barter with a tribe or a small city next door or whatever and and that would be your kind of kind of quote unquote representative and and um and then and if anything they were just like kind of running errands and then these people kind of became uh, eventually came into a position of power some people think that with the advent of agriculture we were able to accrue these resources and stockpile these resources and then that that gave some men uh um a advantage and and there certainly was if if you look at uh if you look at the other side of it 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 looks like um I, uh, males have also been uh, some some b- big losers. They they've never they've all they've been at the top a lot, but they're also in terms of like homeless rates, for example, mm-hmm. or or life expectancy, um, or or imprisonment. It seems like there's just a lot more kind of risk taking 
um, in in general, maybe around the human population. But there, but there's definitely like, I mean, anyone can see that there's uh, this. If you look at the top, it seems to be pretty monopolized by males. Do do you think that within kind of hunter gatherers within uh, before the kind of industrial or uh, sorry. Was I saying industrial? I meant agricultural revolution. Uh, do you think before before that time, before cities, there was probably a lot more balance? Well, again, this is something that sort of the search for kind of primitive matriarchy or right. at least more egalitarian. I mean, in general, small-scale societies – I mean, here I have to kind of sort of hedge around. There's been a sort of search for trying to find – more egalitarian societies. Some of it is wishful thinking about the past. Mm. Some of it is, oh, you know, it must have been back in the day when the mother goddess was all this. Hmm. The it's not that, just chimps and war. There's no, also, yeah. also these bonobos, yeah, yeah, these free yeah, love, yeah, blah blah blah. Yeah, 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 yeah so um, there's a lot of wish thinking. Yeah, you know, people who study chimps say uh, not bonobos but chimpanzees. Some uh, people whose work I read about chimps say, you know, basically if. Um, if male chimps could have talked, they'd have figured out how to oppress female chimps more. <laughs> you know, so, so they say, don't, like, don't go around looking in the primate past for some kind of mythical or like kind of egalitarianism. It's not there. Maybe mm-hmm. it's in bonobos, but it's not in chimps. Um, and people who study, you know, who study kind of Paleolithic people say, well, smaller scale societies tend to be more egalitarian than larger scale societies in general, not only along gender lines, but just even along all kinds of lines. In other words, the, dis- the difference between a really rich person in a, br- in a band of 50 and a really poor person in a band of 50 isn't very great. Well, it's only 50 people. And also, if you're carrying your stuff around, you don't want to have a lot of stuff. So that the the possibilities for social hierarchy and gender hierarchy, once you settle down, um, are greater just because now you don't have to carry your stuff around mm-hmm. all the time. And so that's the the means of the subsistence means then lead into greater both social hierarchy between wealthy and poor and gender hierarchy between men and women. Yeah, I think I mean I teach that that agriculture certainly has something to do with it, and that particularly plow agriculture, because hmm. agriculture using large plow animals, large plow animals tended to be. I mean, there is sexual dimorphism anyway. In other words, men are bigger than women, and this is not just a cultural cultural thing. Not everybody, just in general, average. Right. Um, and so they tended to be the ones that took care of larger animals. But then there's also very early on, and this is where it gets really very difficult because we're back at the beginnings of something for which we have no written documents. By the time the written documents come in, they're already talking about a culture that, you know, cultural practices that have existed already for thousands of years. Right. So the, the very first writings that we have, you know, laws and other kinds of things like that, I mean, the gender hierarchy is already there. They're not invented by the law. The law is describing something that's already happening, but then they're reinforced by writing and by law and by other kinds of things. So, so yes, I think that, that, uh, land ownership and ownership of stuff plays a role in, in, if not creating a gender hierarchy to begin with, increasing it. Uh, I think that violence plays a role and physical violence plays a role in this clearly, um, in increasing it, if not the origins. I don't think the origins are too, hard to see. And in fact, many anthropologists and archaeologists say, don't try to always ask for origins. Things have multi-origins and to always try to figure out like what the origin is. Like, it's kind of like the wrong question, but it's still a question that we have. Like, where did this come from? Um, you know, I think that 
that what you then get is a number of different things that work together. So material, the material world in terms of sexual dimorphism physically and violence, the world of the fact that women give birth and for a period of time they are a child's, at least in earlier cultures, before there's agriculture, meaning something else that infants can eat, they are a child's food. Um, you have to figure out how to carry your child around. And in fact, people who study very early humans and hominids would say that really probably the first tool, the very first tool was some sort of sling. It just didn't survive. So way before hand axes and other sorts of things that we think of as early human tools, which are all for killing. Um, no, it was some woman who said, I got to carry this kid around. I don't have, you know, I've got long hair. I don't want him grabbing onto me, but I don't have body hair. So they can't do what chimpanzees do. I got to figure out some way to carry him. Mm-hmm. So probably the earliest human tool was a sling, some kind of something or other to carry a kid around made out of something. Um, but they're, they're, those are all natural, you know, they're all made of plants or made of animal skins and they're gone. So that that was you know, that you needed to figure out how to carry kids around um, or have children with you. So that I think that that's you now I'm sounding like some kind of a you know biology's destiny person. Well, you know it's it's female bodies that give 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 birth um, or female identified bodies. Now we would say as we understand gender to be less less dimorphic. Uh, so that's you know that's part of it as well. Um, then cultural values come in really, 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 really early, however, in that there are, you know, certainly before there's writing, there's already uh, religious systems in which there's some kind of a male main god um, that's there really, 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 really early, meaning the the earliest written records that we have are already talking about religious systems in which the, you know, the chief god like Marduk slays some old bad female god and rips her body apart and creates the earth out of it. That's a Babylonian myth. You know, and these are kind of myths that are in many different places. There are more egalitarian myths. And I think, again, thinking about historians using, working interdisciplinarily, um, looking at creation accounts and creation myths around the world. And we find more egalitarian ones where there's men and women who are involved in the creation of the world. Male and female deities, I would say, not men and women, male and female deities who are involved in the creation of the world. I, and, I'm curious, you know, yeah. sorry to interrupt, yeah. but but is, uh, I, I don't know, <laughs> is, uh, would like polytheistic uh, ideas be a little more, to lend themselves more that, toward, a, or not necessarily? Well, not necessarily. I mean, you know, there's certainly monotheism in, in the modern monotheistic religions, you know, meaning Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. The main god, the main god or only god is male. Um, so there's that. But there's plenty of polytheistic systems where the, the most active god is male. Um, where there's a chief creator god and he's a guy. Um, so it's not necessarily that there's the polytheism versus monotheism. There's just, there's, there's all kinds of varieties of, of polytheistic systems. And even system might be a wrong way to put about it. And also, you know, it's, it's just, Religious ideas or religious, I keep wanting to use the word system as a good modern Western word, religious ways of viewing the world in terms of the spirit world and the unseen world, ways of viewing the unseen world. Uh, let's put it that way to be really general. Um, some of them also have, have sh- lots of shape shifting deities who shift shapes between not only male and female, but also animal shapes and such. So I think that also is there's a wide variety in the relationship, because that's another kind of hierarchy, is what is the hierarchy between the hu- between humans and the rest of the living world, or the rest of the world in general? Um, 
are humans meant to be master of the universe? Are they meant to be, are they understood to simply be a part in this? Do they change places with animals and how do they do that? And what's the relationship there? Um, so, so there's a, just a really wide variety in that. Um, now saying there's a wide variety, also then we get kind of get back to the question though about kind of gender hierarchies, that there's a wide variety, but the tendency, so there's, Cultures around the world are more egalitarian, and cultures around the world are less egalitarian. And there's some places where women have some kinds of social roles that they don't in other places, including choosing mates uh, and such. Um, but on balance, that's not been the case in most of human history. So you you did mention that you know forty fifty years ago things were uh, or even further back things were uh, potentially even much worse uh, for females than than is uh, still I think most people would agree or certainly females a frustrating <laughs> situation today uh, I rightfully think that but but there there must have been some cultural differences as you mentioned were were there any uh were there any civilizations any any things in history that were that that females had had a a, a bit more power a bit more influence a bit more um more rights more res- respect than than our uh, the kind of standard narrative that we see yes and i'm also sort of laughing cuz it's like we've been looking for them <laughs> for a, for a really long long time oh. um you know, there are people who, uh, who argue again for sort of early Iron Age Europe as being one place. Uh, my colleague Bettina Arnold will wince when she hears me say that. It's not really true. Uh, you know, there's a, there are assorted ethnic groups in, uh, in Central Asia that are more, more egalitarian. Um, again, that women have greater decision make rules. People have pointed to the Iroquois and then other people who study there go, not really. Um, so again, I, I think the best way to think of it again is is sort of like a spectrum between more egalitarian and less egalitarian, and but not there really hasn't been a society that anybody's found that's that's a kind of matriarchy in which in which women play all of the role have all of the dominant roles in the way that we certainly we certainly see many many societies in which men have all the dominant roles now i again uh, as i try, try to always define patriarchy to to my students patriarchy isn't just a system also about male domination of women it's also a system in which men have power over other some men have power over other men and some women have power over other women and also men so queen elizabeth i of course, because of the accidents of birth, uh, you know, I was somebody said somebody asked me the other day, like, well, like if Queen I was talking about her, in fact, and if, you know, if Queen Elizabeth had been a boy, like, what would have happened? And I said, well, it would it, everything would have been completely different. First of all, her mother wouldn't have gotten killed because um, her dad would have been happy. He wouldn't have become a Protestant. England would maybe still be Catholic. I mean, we don't know what happened. It's a what if. But what we do know is that even for somebody, I mean, she's the pinnacle. She's the monarch. She's the top number one person. And even for someone like that, the most important thing about her was that she was a woman. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, well, social class matters. Of course it does. Race matters. Uh, other kinds of factors we think of as categories of difference matter. But when you when you look at that, you think, okay, well, it would have really been different, you know. Um, or, I don't know, if Adolf Hitler had been a girl. <laughs> you know, I mean, to sort of flip around the other way. If we, if we try to think about people who are um, world historical people, of which most have been male, um, 
and then you say, you know, there's a wonderful essay, old essay by Virginia Woolf about Shakespeare's sister. What would have happened to Shakespeare's brilliant sister? It's a really sad, you know, and she's being very realistic looking back and saying, well, you know, <laughs> she wouldn't have been Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we wouldn't, you know, what would have been with Judith Shakespeare? Uh, because that was so the, even then, I guess someone who's that brilliant or in my Queen Elizabeth example, even someone at the very top of the, you can't get higher than a monarch. <laughs> Right. Um, and, and it was, that's, so the fact that she was not male, um, really mattered and shaped a lot about, it's one of those, again, one of those things we think, try to think of like things that shape history, um, people having the children or having the families that they did. I mean, the tutors started out talking about, you know, like all my students talk about sexy tutors, um, the fact that the Tudor family developed as it did and English history developed as it did because of the way the Tudor family developed is completely based on, on kind of accidents of birth and death. You know, Henry's first wife didn't have the right, he only had a girl. And her second wife only had a girl. Um, the only way he could solve that problem was because he had to get a boy was to make England Protestant. Now it's, way, you know, it's a little oversimplifying it, but. But the course of history would have been really, really different if simply, like a, a really simple thing, if the gender of those children had been different. Hmm. Now, for most people, you know, kind of ordinary people, of course, they don't have, they're not the tutor, <laughs> tutors. Um, but up until very recently, most, uh, you know, most countries were ruled by hereditary monarchies. If we think about back from the, the earliest beginning of, you know, 3,000 years, 5,000 years ago, from the beginning of cities, the beginning of states, the beginning of, and they're all ruled by hereditary monarchies. And so whether you had the right boys or girls and whatever really shaped what, what, what you're going to do. And if we sort of think of kind of the old traditional kind of history, and this is getting back to your question about like what's different now or how, how say looking at women sh- makes things different. The traditional kind of history, which is a story about the rise and fall of states and countries and military, um, you know, it's like, oh, well, what's women got to do with that? Well, in the 17th and 18th centuries, lots of wars in Europe were fought. They're, they're called that. They're called the War of the Spanish Succession, the War of the Austrian Succession. I mean, this is really traditional history. And some of the guys who were like studying it managed to not notice that the reason that those were wars about succession was because somebody didn't have the right kind of baby. <laughs> like, you're fighting over the succession because there wasn't a boy. Oh, well, why didn't you give girls a chance? Well, because we didn't do that. So, so there's an example, I think, of, of tradition, really traditional history, like war, um, and political succession and diplomacy, like the most traditional <laughs> kind of history. But once you start to think about gender in it, I mean, it's right smack, it hits you in the, like, mm-hmm. that's the name of the war, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, the, and those are wars that then shaped wars that didn't, weren't necessarily about, that don't have the word succession in the title. Um, but like English history is all about, and like when England went to war, or didn't go to war is all about the fact that who had babies and who didn't have babies. And then if you didn't have any children, well, then you got to pull a monarch from somewhere else. So what do you do? You go looking somewhere else for a monarch to rule you because you don't have somebody in line because the queen or king, the queen didn't have, the king didn't have a son. Um, so I think that once you start to ask questions about, about women and gender, you, you end up making all history different. I mean, it's just, and one of the things you, you'd asked earlier about finding things out about ordinary people. So part of what women's history has done is it said, we've got to go looking for new sources because, 
and the sources are there. I mean, well, I was told 40 years ago when I started starting this biz, oh, you know, women didn't work in this city. Well, yes, they did. And I know how to find it. <laughs> um, or women do this. and they did. Yes, they did. And I know how to find them information about that. What are these new sources? But part of it's like looking at old at things we've known about for a really, really long time and just asking new questions about it and going like, hmm, what do you know? Hmm. Hmm. They're fighting about the lack of an heir. Okay, well. So that's a gender issue, <laughs> and it's a sex issue too. You know, he's not so interested in having an heir. Yeah, why? Well, actually, because he's gay. I mean, you know, I mean, or he's more interested in male favorites. So, so that once you start to ask those kind of questions, and you go, "What do you know?" Old traditional history can actually get a lot more interesting, <laughs> at least to my students, than than sort of dusty old names and dates about memory or about war. So. Hmm. Man, we have, <laughs> I could go on and on talking about all of this stuff because there's there's so many of these just shifts in mental constructs kind of throughout history that have changed things. So this idea of democracy, which like no one ever thought to like, uh, King was never like, oh, I wonder what this peasant would have <laughs> have to say. It was just like seemingly this counterintuitive um, uh, thing at the time. Even even science, uh, the idea of of not knowing, some, of saying I don't know, and and then also realizing that even though you don't know something, there might be value in pursuing that knowledge further mm-hmm. and and that might be something worth digging into that's something it's like well is before that is either well you you know it or it's not worth knowing basically or it's up to the gods and and these are these are things that created these enormous shifts it it might be that uh that uh and any time now people uh, some country might be like hey it seems like these these women can do all sorts of stuff. That's we just doubled our talent pool. Yeah, right, it's called there. Sweden, and, right? <laughs> right, and and that might really create some uh, some actual change very very quickly. It could happen. It's it's. I think most people are probably have been discouraged lately that that is going to happen. But who knows? It's something worth shooting for, if you ask me. Um, I I want to I want to uh, give people more to investigate first. Um, I want to, uh, before hearing about your books, I want to, I have my guests each week plug a charity of their choice. Um, so what would you like to plug? Yeah. And I'd like to actually plug a charity that's related to sort of, uh, what we've been talking about. And that's violence against women, uh, today, in, in today rather, rather than in the past. And actually the broader issue of that. And that's the Sojourner Family Peace Center, uh, which is here in Milwaukee. And you can look it up, familypeacecenter.org. Uh, it began its life as the Sojourner Truth House uh, for Battered Women back in the 70s, I think, even, or in the 80s. Uh, and it's had a variety of different kind of connections with different kinds of other violence against women and rape crisis centers. But the Sojourner Family Peace Center is an absolutely amazing place. It has a variety of different, both uh, providing shelter for women who need it from domestic violence situations, outreach into the community, uh, and it does a, a wonderful uh, and really needed, sadly, uh, still really needed uh, job here in Milwaukee. Hmm. Well, I, that's absolutely wonderful. Um, uh, thank you for a thoughtful plug. I want your. I, I think that to the listeners are going to, be, especially because we've never had a historian <laughs> on before. People are people are now listening and being like, "Oh my goodness, we there's some large gaps here." And you have, if I remember correctly, you said eighteen thousand different books. What if we were to? Uh, that might be a little overwhelming for people. How about? 
do you, do you have you have three books out there maybe that that you would like to um uh, tell people a little bit about people are just wondering where to start and then they're eventually going to get through all of your books but, <laughs> but what, what's a what's a good three to start with maybe maybe a little kind of diversity so um people can pick one or go a different track you know whatever it's your it's your your books you okay. plug away <laughs> it's my books already um first of all uh I'll do the one that, that that you've already mentioned, which is The Concise History of the World, which started out as um, I was sort of complaining about world history. And I'm a convert to world history. I started out as a European historian. And then I started to say, well, like, why am I just talking about Europe? So it's not the world we live in. And it's not my students. And it's not what Milwaukee is. So, uh, But as I started to do world history, I sort of thought most of the things tend to focus on political economy. They tend to focus a lot of stuff about and what I thought was kind of traditional things. And I complained that there just wasn't really a lot of kind of social and cultural world history. And I thought, okay, I just have to quit complaining. I just have to see if I can do it. <laughs> so my concise history of the world is my attempt to write a social and cultural history of the world uh, from the Paleolithic or from a little bit about pre-Homo sapiens human evolution from the Paleolithic to now. Um, was out in 2015 from Cambridge University Press, uh, written for a general audience, not written for uh for scholars, because it's a concise history of the world. Um, it's about 300 pages. Uh, and you could see see if I did that. Okay, so there's one. Um, another one uh, that I have, which is coming out in fourth edition next year, is called Women and Gender in the Early Modern World from Cambridge University Press. The press will be happy if I, if I plug them as well. What, um, what was wrong with the first three editions? <laughs> what was, well, wait, wait, I'm always curious yeah. why, why, why so many editions uh, uh, in academic books? There's just new... There, there's new knowledge. And right. so you say, well, I was not... You know, the first... And some of what's in the fourth edition was in the first edition. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first edition was skinnier, sadly. There's way, 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 way... People are just doing way too much research. It's just... Women's history is such an... Ex- it's... The history of women and gender is a sadly booming, booming field. Um, but it means there's all sorts of new knowledge that's being created all the time because we found so many more th- kinds of things. And what's the big difference? I mean, between the first edition and the fourth edition and the middle two editions are kind of along the way is that by now, so 20 years after I wrote the first edition, mm-hmm. we know way more about what women are actually doing. Um, the first edition, we knew a lot about what guys thought about women, because that's the most recorded thing in history in terms of women. The easiest thing to find out about in women's history is what did guys think about women, because they write about women all the time. And most of what we have in the recorded past is from men. So it was like, okay, there's laws and rules and opinion pieces of men, you know, philosophical treatises and religious r- rules and such. Yeah, but now people have been doing women's gender history now for 40 years or 50 years, and it's newest guys. We know lots, lots, lots more about what actual women are doing and what they wrote and we're finding new things. So so I would say the real difference is there's more women <laughs> and more women further down the social scale, uh, a greater diversity of women. It's about Europe, but it's also about the colonial world. And so that's another thing. It has a kind of global aspect, which the first edition didn't have because I wasn't thinking that way then. Okay, so that's two. Um, three, a really different kind of thing I did is a book that I uh, was published by Yale about a Oh gosh, it's I've never t- heard of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about uh, publishers always ask that you when you talk about books, please, <laughs> please tell who publishes them. Um, it was published now, gosh, a decade or so ago. Uh, called the Marvelous Hairy Girls, and that's a it's a book about a family of very hairy people who lived about seventeen hundred, so about the the sixteen hundred, excuse me, about the my time uh, in Europe, um, who had an 
a gen, what we now know as a genetic abnormality called hypertrichosis, which meant that their bodies were co- very covered with hair. They looked sort of like dogs um, in terms of level of hairiness. Uh, it's usually not handed down in families. In this case, it was. There were three sisters and two brothers and a father who all had it. And I got fascinated by them when I saw a picture of one of the, a painting of one of the little girls when I was looking for something else, a, a painting actually painted by a female artist. And I said, like everybody who looks at her, what is this? It's a little, very hairy face in a pink brocade, beautiful gown with a lace collar. And I said, I don't understand this. And, and I have mm-hmm. to find out more about this child. Um, and so I tried to find out everything that I could about them, which is not terribly much. Uh, and then I tried to think about, okay, what can I know based on my knowledge of what life was like for people, ordinary people in this, at this time period? What else could I maybe figure out their lives must have been like? So I tried to trace the lives of these three sisters uh, and their two brothers, but mostly the girls, because I, I like to try to think about uh, girls. Um, and what were their lives like? And where, where, where and when they lived? And what traces can we find of them? There are some other uh, paintings made of them. There are some historical sources and written documents about them. There's not a shred of evidence, not one piece of evidence from the girls themselves. One of their brothers gets a position as a little sort of city bureaucrat and some letters are from, we have some letters from him. Not a shred. Um, so it's kind of like, how do you really tell a story about people for whom nothing can be written from them? And can I, can I maybe even just try to speculate, try maybe be like being more novelist than a historian or trying to think about what may, what might have they been thinking? I mean, I can't know. And lots about history is you get very humble and you say, I can't know the answer to this question. I can't know whatever what they thought. I mean, nothing. Um, but, but I can think about what I do know and how that might help me understand at least then, if not what they know, what did the people who were surrounded them who are not hairy, what did they think of these little girls? And, and one, uh, in fact, grew up and got married and uh, had children of her own. Um, but what, what was their, what's the, what was their world? Uh, so, so those are my three. Fascinating. Well, boy, I, I hope to have you on again sometime. This is endless. Well, thank you, Mary Wiesner Hanks, for joining us. And uh, again, thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. And we'll talk with you next week. Next week on the podcast, I'm talking with Mark Forehand. He's a marketing professor, and we talk about the implicit association tests and how they relate to marketing. So we're talking about stereotyping and marketing. Ooh, how do those come together? You'll have to tune in next week to find out stand-up science has taken off, everybody. Let me just list these cities. I am so proud of how many cities we have going here. La Crosse, Wisconsin in January, Portland. Uh, Oregon, San Diego, Los Angeles, Indianapolis, Pittsburgh, Columbus, Cleveland, Chicago, Lansing, Michigan, Kalamazoo, Michigan, Royal Oak, Michigan, Madison, Des Moines, and then in February, Iowa City, Minneapolis, Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is a regular stand-up and uh, live Here We Are podcast, not a stand-up science, but still, you should come to that, just like you should come to Cincinnati. Come there to Cincinnati. 
It's a bunch of shows, and you can see me. Rhode Island. Why am I doing weird voices? Uh, Providence, Rhode Island. Boston, Massachusetts. Newmarket, New Hampshire. Portland, Maine. Harrisburg, Virginia. Richmond, Virginia. Norfolk, Virginia. Raleigh, North Carolina. Greensboro, North Carolina. Asheville, North Carolina. Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Nashville, Tennessee. And back to Jamaica again. That's sold out. But working on some Colorado dates. Working on all sorts of dates all over the place. I'll keep you posted from there. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites. Happy New Year. Outro music today provided by Hello Luna.
I still got fight.